for as long as we've lived here in Bedford, one of our neighbors has a yard sign out front. On the one side it says, maybe you've seen these, don't give up. On the other side it says, you are not alone. He's had this up for a while, this couple, um, and I asked him on Halloween, did you intend for that to be really spooky for the month of October? Like, you are not alone. And he said, no, no. A horror movies aside and Halloween decorations aside, the truth is that nobody wants to be alone. Sure, introverts enjoy having alone time, but abandoned, isolated, forsaken, we shudder at the thought. This morning we come to the second half of Mark 14 to the very darkest verses in all of Mark's gospel, as we consider the abandonment and betrayal of Jesus Christ. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Mark 14. We'll be in verses 32 to 72 this morning. So far in Mark's gospel, we've seen God the Father anoint God the Son with God the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. Over the past 14 chapters, Jesus has authoritatively healed and taught and worked miracles He's astounded the crowds, infuriated the religious leaders, and shown tender compassion and mercy towards the hurting. Though many thought he was merely an impressive prophet or powerful miracle worker, since chapter 8, Jesus climactically revealed himself as the Christ, uh, that is, the King of Israel. He is Israel's long-awaited Messiah, and he's also the suffering Son of Man both of which have, are coming true now that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, he's the king who takes up his cross and calls his followers to follow him. And then last week, we saw Jesus prepare his disciples for his death as he, the true and better Passover lamb, predicted their falling away as he instituted the Lord's Supper. And so we arrive at our passage this morning. We'll have three points, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Despite their failures, Jesus loved his own to the end. Despite their failures, Jesus loved his own to the end. So read with me, Mark 14, beginning in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Can you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time 
and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
and he broke down and wept. Amen. Our first point is found in verses 32 to 42, entitled, Sorrowful Unto Death. And we really, you know, we kind of jump into the deep end right away, don't we? In verse 32, Jesus arrives at the Garden of Gethsemane. Most of his disciples are told to stay put, but three of them get a closer look. Verse 33, right? And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. You know, all the way back in the early chapters, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus had asserted, if you remember, that he was the bridegroom. They said, why aren't, why aren't your disciples fasting? And he said, well, look, the bridegroom's here. Me, I'm, I'm here. It's a time of feasting and celebration. But there is a day coming when the bridegroom's going to be taken away. So since the beginning, Jesus knew that this day would come. And of course, since chapter 8, he's been absolutely crystal clear about his death. But now it's upon him. And the sorrow is overwhelming. I mean, you see that in the repetition. He's greatly distressed, troubled. He specifically tells them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Why is Jesus so grieved? I mean, yes, the next 24 hours for Jesus are not going to be pleasant. No questions there. No doubts about that. But think about it. Mark just prayed for the persecuted church. For 2,000 years, Christians have rejoiced as they walked to their martyrdom. They have stood against the mouths of lions with praises to God. They have been burned at the stake in Europe praying for their tormentors. They have been under the boot of communist regimes, giving glory to God. What was Jesus facing that made his impending death so much worse than theirs? Well, brothers and sisters, here at the very beginning of our passage, we already get a sense that this will be no ordinary death, no ordinary crucifixion. Jesus was not just headed to death by torture. He was moments away from bearing the sins of his people. And in bearing the sins of his people, he bore the punishment for the sins of his people. The infinite, almighty, horrifying, dread-inducing wrath of God. It is this, Luke 22 tells us, that makes him sweat drops of blood. To say that my soul is very sorrowful even to death is to say, as I think it were, Jesus is saying, my soul is so grieved, it's experiencing a kind of death now. While Christ's body would be broken and his blood would be spilt on Calvary, here in the Garden of Gethsemane, his soul began to know the very bitterness of death itself. And then we get further glimpses into Jesus' suffering in verses 35 and 36. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Though Jesus did not have the strength to stand, he did have the strength to pray. 
for in his suffering he knew the necessity of prayer. My brothers and sisters, Jesus is a model for us here. In his trials, he didn't run away from God. He ran to him. When you face trials of various kinds, turn to your heavenly Father. Because that's what Jesus says, right? Abba, Father. Here we see the intimacy between God the Father and God the Son. Twice the Father has professed his love for his Son. You remember at Jesus' baptism, you are my beloved Son, in chapter 1. And then in chapter 9, at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So the Father has professed his love, and here now we see the Son's, Jesus' own affection and intimacy with his Father. Notice that Jesus was praying that, if possible, the hour might pass for him. This hour is the culminating and climactic hour of Jesus' life. He says in John 12, 27, For this purpose I have come to this hour. Uh, Make no mistake, Jesus came to die. His birth and his childhood and his life and his ministry, and his teaching, and his healings, the whole kit in the caboodle, it was oriented and aiming for this great, dark hour. Now, what are we to make of Jesus saying, if possible, have this hour pass, and then he says, all things are possible. I mean, which is it? Friends, here's where our doctrine of God is so important. Okay, so listen carefully. Is God all-powerful? Yes. Can God do anything he wants or wills? Yes. However, are there some things that God cannot do? Yes. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. He cannot deny himself. The scripture of testimony is crystal clear that there are, in fact, lots of things that God cannot do. For these things would be against his will. They'd be against what he desires because it's against his very character and nature. Right? So to the silly question, maybe you've heard it. uh, You know, can God create a rock so built it's too heavy he can't lift it? It's nonsensical because God is a God of logic and order, of non-contradiction. So here we must ask, could this hour pass from Jesus? And the answer is yes and no. Yes, Jesus did not have to endure God's wrath. Jesus could call down legions of angels at any moment to thwart his persecutors. God can do whatever he wants. But no, this hour could not pass, for God wanted a bride for his son. God willed that sinners could be redeemed. And the problem is that we are, good, we are not good and God is good, right? For God to have a people, how could he forgive his, our sins? We are sinners. He's a God of justice. We cannot on our own be made right with God. If God is to have a people, there must be a substitute. There must be a sin bearer and a wrath 
substitute. We need a savior. Jesus must drink the cup. Uh, what, what is this cup that Jesus mentions? We saw it earlier in chapter 10. Now, the cup is the cup of God's wrath. So Jeremiah 25, 15 says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. Uh, the Old Testament, there's a bunch of references. If you just Google it, literally, the cup of God's wrath, you'll see there's a bunch of Old Testament references. But we do see it as well later in the New Testament. In Revelation 14, we also hear about this cup that Jesus was about to drink. Uh, and frankly, the passage is breathtaking. It literally will take your breath away. Just listen. Revelation 14. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Friends, does that appall you? It should. This was the unimaginable suffering that Jesus was about to endure. For three hours on the cross, he would drink down to the dregs, the very cup of God's wrath. The affliction from human hands was nothing compared to the bruising he received from the hand of God. This was the cup that Christ shuddered to drink. And so just as Jesus asked for the suffering to be removed, uh, Christian, know that it it's fine and appropriate and good for you in whatever trials and sufferings that you face to ask God that he would remove that suffering from your life, right? I mean, Jesus asks. It's okay. We ask. Paul, 2 Corinthians, right? He asks that the thorn would be removed. But notice how Jesus ends his prayer in verse 36. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Make no mistake, here we see the greatest act of obedience in human history. Even as Jesus desired for this cup to pass him by, he desired even more to be obedient to his heavenly father. For Jesus knew that it is better to suffer than to sin. You know, we for the most part endure suffering out of necessity, right? Cancer job loss, wayward children. These are heavy afflictions, and we don't choose them, right? Uh, they just happen under God's providence. But Jesus chose this path. Before the foundation of the world and in covenant with his heavenly Father, he knew this hour would come, and he still, in love, chose it. Beloved, this is where the battle for humanity was won. 
Do you remember how it was initially lost? Adam and Eve, they too were in the garden. And they too were presented with an opportunity to evade God's instructions. And they took it. They said, not your will be done, but mine. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. This is the essence of sin and rebellion. Yet Jesus does not give in. And so, brothers and sisters, it is right to ask God for whatever suffering is going on in your life this morning. It is right for you to ask God to end it, to take it away. But may we never insist. Not your will, O God, but mine be done. Let us follow our Savior, Jesus Christ, whatever the cup of God's providence is for our lives. Jesus' misery only deepens in verses 37 and 38. Look there. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation for the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, if you knew you were about to die and you were with your friends, wouldn't you want them to stay with you? Wouldn't you want their company and their comfort and their consolations? The disciples here have better things to do. The disciples foreshadow their spiritual desires are no match for the weakness of fleshly comfort. They are no solace to their king. Jesus wants them to pray that they would not enter into temptation. Brothers and sisters, when you face temptation... Do you pray when tempted by greed or vanity or lust or lying? May we not live for the bodily pleasures, the fleshly pleasures of sleep or sex or safety, none of which are bad. But may we always ask God for the grace to resist temptation when we shouldn't pursue those things. In verse 39, Jesus prays the same words reminding us that we should persevere in prayer. Yet he returns to find his disciples asleep the second time. And so finally in verse 41, we read, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping, taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Though the disciples had not literally abandoned Jesus yet, they were entirely unprepared for the trials that tested their own faith, that awaited them. And yet Jesus remains in control, right? He he knows his betrayer's coming. He entrusts himself to his heavenly father. So what should we take away from Gethsemane? Uh, Let's consider two brief lessons before we move on. First, we cannot emerge from Gethsemane unaffected by our sin. When we consider the grief and the sorrow that Christ went through and the horror of the cup that awaited him, we are reminded of the heinous and brutal nature of our sin. That this is what it required. Our, serious is so, our sin is so serious and so damnable that this is what it required of the Son of God. 
Such was his distress that Jesus knew the wrath to come. He knew the hell he was about to endure. In Gethsemane, we see both the heinousness of sin and the horror of hell. As one hymn puts it, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Yet the second thing we see from the Garden of Gethsemane is that we cannot emerge from Gethsemane unaffected by his love for us. Right? I mean, Christian, consider the depths of agony endured by Christ. There you behold the heights of his love, the lengths that Christ has gone to secure your salvation, your reconciliation, your adoption. He's doing it for you. Beloved, when you are tempted to think that God has forgotten about you or that he has abandoned you or is cool towards you, kind of putting up with you, okay, I'm glad I saved Jesse, I'm glad I saved Holly, but uh, I guess I just have to put up with them now. Remember Gethsemane. Remember the lengths that Christ has gone to purchase you. Who has ever seen such love? Who has ever seen such sacrifice and service? To what will we compare such love? Consider not only the son's love, but the father's. Does a father love anything more than his son? Does a parent love anything more than his or her children? Yet here, God the father willingly let his son suffer for you, Dave, for you, Nick, because of his love. He saw the tears and the groans, and for your sake, he did not withdraw the cup. Oh, brothers and sisters, whatever suffering you are enduring, do not think that Christ is unaware of your trial. He has endured the very same kinds, and he did it for you. As we sang earlier, oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death, life is mine to live, won through your selfless love. This the power of the cross, Son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. Let's turn to our second point in verses 43 to 52, entitled, Betrayed. This will be our briefest point. Jesus has just said that his betrayer is at hand. And look at verse 45. And when Judas came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. It is one thing to be betrayed. It is still worse to be betrayed with a kiss. In this, Judas mocked 
the very friendship and affection and intimacy and love that Christ had shown him. Judas reveals a blackened heart, willing to send his friend to death for a few coins. Uh, The depths of his depravity are matched only by God's justice of judgment against him. As Jesus said last week, it would have been better if he had never been born. In verse 47, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, draws a sword to fight against Jesus' captors, showing that he still does not understand that Christ came to die. He still was thinking that Jesus' kingdom is of this world and that this betrayal is a detour from Jesus' plan. Yet, as Jesus says in verse 49, let the scriptures be fulfilled. In short, this is not an impediment to my plan. This is my plan. In verses 51 and 52, we see just how desperate people are to disassociate themselves from Jesus as this young man runs away naked. Uh, You know, it's better for this man, in his calculation, this young man, better to be naked and not with Jesus than clothed and with Jesus. And so to translate verse 50 a little more literally, and leaving him, they fled, all of them. Tragically, Zechariah 13, which Jesus quoted last week, has come true. God was striking the shepherd, the flock was scattering. In his hour of need, Jesus had been abandoned. And so we see two divergent responses to suffering, don't we? We see the faithfulness of Jesus and the faithlessness of his disciples. This reminds us that suffering never causes us to sin. Okay? Suffering never causes us to sin. It rather reveals what is inside of us. Okay? Suffering is like shaking a water bottle. You get to see what's inside. Is it pure and clean and undefiled? Maybe you look at this water bottle and you think, oh, wow, there's clean, great water. But then you start shaking it up, and the debris and the dirt and the sediment becomes apparent. Suffering reveals what we're truly like. For Christ, suffering revealed his humility, his trust in his heavenly Father his love for the sheep. For the disciples, the prospect of suffering stirred up fear and betrayal. And so we arrive at our final section in verses 53 to 72, entitled, Who is Jesus? Uh, Please don't roll your eyes. Here we come to, I think, the very last Markin sandwich. Okay, so you've been with us. You know that a Markin sandwich is when Mark begins a story He'll interrupt that story, and then he'll return to that that first initial story. Uh, The purpose is that we would interpret the middle in light of the ends and vice versa. So we get the beginning of the sandwich in verses 53 and 54. Uh, Look there. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Okay, pause. Peter is doing a pretty good job. 
Jesus has just been taken to the religious leader's inner sanctum, right? Like the Tower of Baradura in Mordor, the pinnacle of the bad guys, their lair. And Peter follows him. Do you notice that? I mean, it's amazing. It's this very specific word throughout the Gospel of Mark of Jesus's followers, right? In chapter three, Mark defined being a disciple as being with Jesus throughout. We've been learning about people, you know, Bartimaeus followed him on the way. And so in verse 54, Peter's doing pretty well. Maybe he's going to remain loyal to Jesus. Well, then we come to the middle section of the Mark and Sandwich in verses 55 to 65. Verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. This was anything but a fair trial. These religious leaders had already made up their minds about Jesus, that he deserved death, and so they were trying to conjure up the evidence uh, to serve their wicked ends. Brothers and sisters, in whatever authority that God has given you, be careful that you use it justly and fairly for the good of others. Whether that position of authority is in the workplace or local government or the family or this church or your community, whatever it is, work hard to ensure that you use your authority not for selfish gain, but for the flourishing of others. What do we make of the accusation in verse 58? We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Because, of course, it's true that Jesus did predict the destruction of the temple in chapter 13. And as John 2 makes clear, Jesus does refer to his own body as the new temple of God. The temple is where sin is atoned for and where God draws near to people. Does that sound familiar? That's Jesus. In Jesus, sin is atoned for, God draws near to people. The irony, it seems, is that these false witnesses are right in what they accuse of Jesus, but they're entirely wrong in their understanding of it. They prove that they are indeed outsiders, that they can't see past the parable. They're so focused on three days, how is he going to build a new temple? Yet even verse 59, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And so in verse 60, we get something new. You know, in 14 chapters, we've seen lieutenants and officials and all kinds of people from the Sanhedrin. We've seen all kinds of chief priests and scribes, Pharisees, all that. But in verse 60, we get the high priest. And at first he asks, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Why didn't Jesus answer? Well, for two reasons, really. You know, first, the whole reason he came was for this hour, was so that he would die. Wouldn't really make a lot of sense for him to defend his case in court. And the second is that Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 53. Uh, Isaiah 53, verse 7 reads, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, is, that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So too, Jesus opened not his mouth when he was wickedly persecuted. I texted Mark at like 11 o'clock last night. I said, dude, it's crazy. Today is, you know, International Pray for Persecuted Christians Day. And we're like in the text where Jesus is getting persecuted. Christians around the globe experience hatred, arrest, slander, and violence because they follow Christ. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because Jesus says in John 15, 20, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then finally, they do get Jesus to talk. Right there in the middle of verse 61, the high priest asks the most important question, the question that we have been asking for 14 chapters, 22 sermons, who is Jesus? They say, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? That is the son of God. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. No more riddles. Jesus unequivocally says, yes, I am. That is, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. In saying, I am, Jesus uses the specific name of God from the Old Testament. Uh, Just like your name is Ian and your name is Naomi, so God's name is Yahweh. It is I am. That's how he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And Jesus says, that's me. I am. I am Yahweh, the God of Israel. I am the King of Israel. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. I am God. That's what Jesus is saying. When he says that they'll see the Son of Man, he's again referring to Daniel 7, one of Jesus' favorite Old Testament scripture passages. Maybe it was his life verse. As Daniel 7, 13 to 14 states, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Why is Jesus pointing to Daniel 7 in this moment? His point is this. I am the king, and my kingship is coming, and you're going to see it. You'll recall that Jesus' first sermon in chapter 1 was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The Son of God has brought the kingdom of God. And lest you think, I don't know, was Jesus really that explicit about his identity? I mean, look at the the reaction in verses 63 and 64. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. That is, they understand Jesus to be making a claim to be divine. They didn't shrug and go, I wonder what that's about. No, they understand who Jesus is asserting himself to be. And they just don't like it. So friends, don't believe the lie that Christianity foisted divinity onto Jesus in the fourth century. 
Don't be persuaded that the deity of Christ was a later doctrinal development, an invention of the church centuries later. You see it on the lips of Jesus right here. And so they all condemned him as deserving of death. Make no mistake. What earned Jesus the death sentence was not his opinions on Rome, not his views of politics, not even his insulting of the religious leaders. It was his understanding and assertion of his own divine identity. That is why they condemned him to death. And this means that if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you have to square with the historical facts. Uh, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. He claimed to be divine. So maybe he was wrong about that, and he knew he was wrong about that, in which case he was a liar and a fraud. Or maybe he claimed he was divine, but he was wrong, but he thought he was right, in which case he's a lunatic. Neither of those responses should earn much reverence from us. Or he is Lord. He is who he says he is. And so verse 65, some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. He is the son of God. He is the great I am. He is a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And so we come to the end of our Mark and Sandwich and the end of our passage in verses 66 to 72. Peter had started well. The Son of Man is now suffering. Will Peter come through? Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Last week, Peter had boldly claimed that he would die with Jesus if necessary. Yet here, it's a lowly servant girl who comes to him and he denies Jesus, just like Jesus predicted. The girl questions him a second time and then some bystanders in verse 70, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Verse 71 is actually, I mean, it's, it's a little shocking. It's one thing to run away. It's another thing to verbally and explicitly deny Jesus. It is another thing entirely to call down curses and damnation upon yourself if you know Jesus. That's what Peter's doing here. And the irony, of course, is that if Peter does not know Jesus, well, then he most certainly will endure the curse and damnation. His only hope of escaping curse and damnation is in knowing Jesus. Yet he pronounces damnation upon himself as he denies Christ. 
So our passage concludes in verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Here we see the bitterness of sin. Peter experiences the shame and guilt of rejecting his Lord, of failing on his promises in committing the worst imaginable sin. Brothers and sisters, have you known this grief? Have you ever sinned in such a way that you break down and weep? How could I do that again? How could I do it ever? To know that you have dishonored your king and lived for yourself. And thus the point of this final Mark and Sandwich is to show that there is only one person faithful unto death. After his resurrection, Jesus would show abundant grace and restoration to Peter. Praise God, we serve a merciful and forgiving God. This is not the end of Peter's story. But for now, Peter is left with his sin and grief. Now at the end, Jesus is truly alone. He has received no word of comfort from the Father, no reassurance as the beloved Son. He has been betrayed by a friend, abandoned by his followers, judged and condemned by his own people, now disowned and forsaken by his closest companion. And yet the worst is still to come. The cup of God's wrath had only begun to be drunk. The dregs still remained as the cross loomed large. And so as we now turn to celebrate all that Christ has done for us, may we never forget the dying love of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed that you would send your son for us. We praise you for how deep your love is. We praise you for how gracious you are. Lord Jesus, we are speechless in light of your sacrifice. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to love you more and more because of what you've done for us. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.